Well, there's a cartoon in a book. Um, in a book once that says, um, it showed an elderly couple coming out of church, and the wife was saying to her husband, I'll tell you why, it's always the same old sermon. You only come on Easter Sunday, that's why. So I apologize if this is the same old sermon. Let's pray, shall we, before I begin. Father God, as we come to uh, study your word, to look at it together, I pray, Lord, that for some of us at least, it wouldn't be the same old sermon, but by your Holy Spirit, you would make it come alive in our, in our hearts and our minds, and you would help us to put our trust in you, whether that's for our ongoing Christian lives or whether that's because we need to know you uh, from the beginning. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice today. Amen. Well, we mark uh, chapter 10, and that's on page 1015 of your Bibles, if you want to look it up. Somebody once said that ambition usually progresses through the following stages. To be like Dad, to be famous, to be a millionaire, to make enough to pay the bills, to hang on long enough to draw a pension. What do you want out of your life? What do you aim for? This evening we're going to be looking at the issues of ambition and power. And it seems like the disciples struggled with this question as much as we undoubtedly do too. So here we see uh, Jesus, his disciples and his little band of followers on the road to Jerusalem, the capital city, the, the seat of government. And everybody knows there's going to be this big, almighty clash of power between Jesus and the religious authorities there in Jerusalem. And when two powers collide, somebody is going to get hurt. Somebody is going to die. Because that's what happens when two powers collide. In 1982, two previously friendly countries went to war because 39 Argentinian scrap metal dealers landed on the island of Georgia, about 600 miles away from the Falkland Islands. They had a legal commercial contract to do the work with a Scottish company. But Britain sent a warship to go and arrest them, and Argentina sent an army to go and try and get them back, and whilst they were there, they decided to invade the Falkland Islands at the same time. And 900 people died. Perhaps a phone call between embassies could have sorted that one out. But that's what happens when two powers collide. People die. And Jesus knew that. And he knew that on this occasion, it was going to be him. You see, three times in Mark's Gospel, Jesus announces his death and his resurrection. Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. Chapter 9 and verse 31. And chapter 10, verse 33 to 34. And this one we've got in front of us now in chapter 10 is the last and the fullest picture of what is going to happen to Jesus yet. So verse 33. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Three, day, three times Jesus says what is going to happen to him when he reaches Jerusalem. The disciples are astonished and some are afraid, verse 32. But are they concerned for Jesus? Is their concern for Jesus, who they call teacher, they call Lord and they claim to love? Not a bit of it. 
Three times Jesus tells them he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. Three times the disciples behind him jockey for power. They jockey for position behind him. Their minds are not on his suffering. Their minds are on power and prestige that might come to them. Take a look back in chapter 8 and verse 31. Peter immediately begins to rebuke Jesus and tell him that there is a better way. Does Peter really know better than Jesus? After the second prediction in, uh, in chapter 9 and verse 31, they walk to Capernaum and they are arguing on the way. Jesus says, what were you arguing about? Silence. Jesus asks him again, what were you arguing about? Silence. The tense of the verb suggests that Jesus kept on asking them and kept on getting the same answer. Silence. Because we are told in verse 34, they had argued about who was to be the greatest. You see, they were embarrassed about it because they were always competing with each other. I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment, probably not a very good book, which is saying that men must compete. And what a shame it is that Christian men don't know how to compete anymore. They think we shouldn't compete. Well, I can tell you that as a boy who was growing up and still throwing underarm at age 12, uh, I gave up competing a long time ago. Now here in chapter 10, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came to him and said, Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Just have a think about that statement. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's a bit like them asking him to write a blank check, isn't it? You know, just put your date there. Yes, sign down there. Don't worry about the rest. I'll sort that out. Jesus, they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. If I'd been Jesus, I would have said, oh, oh you do, do you? So, um, um, who do you think you are? Or something like that. But Jesus, being Jesus, and slightly different from me, sensibly asks them, so what do you want me to do for you? And it's a good question, because all too often people ask, God, what can I do for you? Can I be good? Can I go to church? Can I think holy thoughts? But real faith, as we'll see later on when you come to blind Bartimaeus in, in Mark, always comes after we realise that the real question is, what can Jesus do for us? But let's stop here and a moment and, what, and think about this question. What a question. It's a question that is going to penetrate our soul and lay bare our true motives, isn't it? See, the Puritans used to say, if you want to know someone's heart, ask them about their daydreams. Some psychologists go around and they put little bleepers around people's necks and when the bleepers go off, you have to write down what you're daydreaming about in that moment. It's a very dangerous experiment, I think. We could try it for the rest of the sermon, couldn't we? Every time I bleep, write down what you are daydreaming about. It would be interesting to compare answers afterwards, wouldn't it? So what were the disciples daydreaming about on the road to Jerusalem? Where Jesus says, bleep, now what do you want me to do for you? And James and John reply in verse 37, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. See, James and John were nicknamed the sons of thunder. And that's nothing to do with having springs for legs. That was their father. <laughs> you have to be of a certain generation to understand that. And not many of you are, obviously. It probably has everything to do with Luke chapter 9 
when James and John went into a Samaritan village and they wanted to call down fire from heaven because the Samaritan village didn't welcome Jesus into it. You've got to wonder about Jesus, haven't you? Out of the twelve, his three, his three best mates were Peter, also known as the Rock, and these two, James and John, the sons of thunder. You can almost imagine them hanging around with leather jackets, a bit like Charlie's wearing tonight, trying to look cool and frightening old ladies. Jesus doesn't really live up to his meek and mild image sometimes. But before we write off these two completely, let's look at the positive side. The sons of thunder did recognise that Jesus was the most powerful person on the planet ever. That's what the little phrase, son of man, in verse 33 means. It's linked to the prophecy in Daniel, which puts Jesus on the same league as the ancient days, God Almighty. They saw that he was a king, not just the king of the Jews, as Pilate would write above his cross in a few days' time, but the king of kings. Charles E. Butler was an artist, and in 1917 he exhibited a painting at the Royal Academy. It had taken him about three years to paint, and it was, it was his dying wish that this painting would be transported around the country and put on public exhibition rather than being held in a private um, collection somewhere. And it did until it was bombed in World War II in, in Hull, whereas it was on display in Hull. But it was called The King of Kings, and it showed Jesus standing at the foot of his cross with the defeated prince of this world standing behind him. And in front of him, in a big semicircle around him, there were all the crowned heads of the world playing, paying homage to Christ. So you had Edward the Confessor kissing his pierced hand. You had Louis IX for France offering him his crown. You had Constantine the Great kneeling beside Queen Victoria, Julius Caesar, Napoleon and others. Altogether, there were 158 kings and queens who appear in this painting not including George Washington and Oliver Cromwell, who also had bit, part, bit parts. And then to one side came hundreds of ordinary peoples as well, showing that Christ is not just the king of kings, but the king of us all. But Christ remains in the centre of the painting and captures our attention. You see, the disciples knew that his destiny was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. They were astonished and afraid, but they knew that Jesus was the Son of Man and the King of Kings. So that brings me to my first question for you tonight. Who do you think Jesus is? It's such a crucial question, isn't it? The Guardian pointed out this week that two-thirds of people in the UK still have some kind of faith in a higher power. That's 30 million people who believe but don't belong to any religious organisation. 30 million people. The Guardian writer calls it the church of everywhere because it's everywhere, in his words, and nowhere, baby. That's where it's at. The church of everywhere turns out at Stonehenge for solstice, at festivals, even in new forms of Morris dancing, he says but most obviously at events such as Jay Goody's funeral, which took place about this time last year, where people can express their spirituality but not have to give any commitment at all. Hosted by the Church of England and Essex, he says, but Jay's funeral was really the church of everywhere. He says they are part of the new faith, which doesn't mind what your God is called, improvised, individualistic, and hard to pin down. It does still have some identifiable collective values, including fair play, individual freedom and the notion of the earth as a sacred place 
The crowds watching on screens outside Jade's funeral gasped at the home videos and blinked back tears at the slushy songs. It was powerful stuff until the time for formal religion came, such as a liturgy in the prayers, when people started making phone calls or just walked away. Perhaps you are like that crowd. You're not sure who this Jesus is. Yes, perhaps you recognize him as a good teacher, a rightful part of a religious and ethical foundation of this country, but do you recognize him as the King of Kings and the Son of God? Do you see that as well as teaching many good things and helping many people, he was also a sane man who deliberately walked to a most horrible death and in doing so claimed that he would both die and rise again in three days' time. Do you believe, as Christians do, that he did indeed rise again three days later? You see, these predictions of Mark are unlikely to have been added later, as some claim. The three of them, they're all slightly different, and the middle one is the shortest and the least developed, suggesting that any editorial tidying up or invention by the disciples later on is, is highly unlikely. No, these words are really the words of Jesus, as remembered by his friend Peter and passed on to Mark, the writer of the Gospel. Was Jesus a fraudster? Then let's just finish here and go home. We can leave Easter to the Easter bunnies and the chocolate eggs. And with the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, we can say, if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is worthless. Let's all just go home. But if Jesus was genuinely God and really did rise again, then the church of everywhere is not for you. Because in Jesus we can see what God is like and what he demands of us. And we'll come on to that in a little while. But first of all, let's ask that second question. Bleep! What do you want from life? What are you daydreaming about? If you are speaking to the most powerful person on the planet and they ask, what do you want me to do for you? What would you ask for? I'll leave you to think about that. But let's look at where James and John got it wrong. So in verse 35, they called him teacher. But they hadn't learnt the bit about blessed are the poor in spirit or turned the other cheek or heard the parable about the wedding feast. All they wanted was a slice of power and influence. They wanted to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus in glory. Jesus says in verse 38, You don't know what you are asking. And then asks, Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? I mean, did they understand the question? Up to that point in scripture at least, the cup represented something allotted to a person by God. It could be good like wealth and happiness. But more likely it meant suffering or wrath, suffering or anger. Baptism hadn't been used in this context at all up to this point. But Jesus seems to be saying, can you take on the needs of others for cleansing as I will do for others myself? Can you suffer with me? Can you bear God's judgment with me? The answer, of course, should have been no if they'd understood the question. But the sons of thunder being the sons of thunder, they answer yes. And that answer betrays their way of thinking. You see, they think that any suffering is going to be outweighed by the prize in heaven. 
In other words, their faith in Jesus is a trade-off. It's a trade-off between the suffering on the one hand and the glory on the other. And in one sense, that's true. Jesus does say, store up your treasures in heaven. And I believe there are rewards in heaven. But I don't think that that is what should rule our life. Because Jesus here doesn't allow James and John to get away with that line of thinking. He says, okay then, you will suffer as I suffer. But don't think about it in terms of suffering in return for reward. Don't even think about the reward. Because verse 40, he says, to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So what do you want from Jesus? In a former life, I used to manage over 700 people. And sometimes, as I drove to work and I drove into the car park and I saw, see all those li- cars lined up in the car park, I think, it would give me a little kick, really. And I think, yes, yeah, it's, it's quite nice to feel that I manage all these people. You know, I lead these people. But I'm very fortunate, I think, because I never really enjoyed having that power. I probably wasn't very good at wielding it either. But it's not really one of my big temptations. I wouldn't want to go back to that life. But I suppose even in that little question in the car park in the morning, the seeds of a desire for power are in within, within me. And the pressure on many of us to seek more and more power in life is very powerful. A chap called Charles Colton put it like this. He said, to know the pains of power, we must go to those who have it. To know its pleasures, we must go to those who are seeking it. To seek after power is very powerful. Even in the church, there's a strong desire for power among some church leaders. I remember Tony Campolo speaking at Spring Harvest on the night that I became a Christian. He said, rewards? People like me can forget rewards in heaven. Preachers like me who come to big events like Spring Harvest and get the adulation of the crowd and the whoopee and the whoopee and the people go whoopee, whoopee. It doesn't happen here very often. But (laughs) have had all the rewards that we can cope with in this lifetime. What really counts is who we are and who we serve. And let's have a look at that now as we look at Jesus' response to the disciples. So verse 41. When the ten heard about this, it was not really surprising that they became indignant with James and John, was it? After all, there's only two places, one on the right and one on the left. What about the rest of them? What about Peter? Up to this time, Peter and James and John were the three best friends of Jesus. They were, the, they were closest to Jesus. They all wanted to be greatest, and here were James and John trying to exclude the others from the top table. So Jesus pulls them together, and he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority. Literally, they subdue them. In other words, you see them, the Gentile rulers, the way they exercise their power. That's not how I want you to behave. You see, those people over there, they are going to crucify me. They lord it over us. They seek their own glory. They seek their own power. But there is a different way to live. Verse 43. Not so with you, says Jesus. Not so with you. He doesn't say, that's not how it's going to be with you in the future. What he says is, not so with you. Present tense. In other words, if you are part of my kingdom, this is how you are. It's a condition. 
There's no room for power-seeking, self-serving disciples in the kingdom of Jesus. Not so with you, says Jesus. There's no room who put their work or their ambition or their career ahead of God. Instead, this is how you must be to be part of my kingdom. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And that's hard. That's very hard. See, James and John, they they were posh kids. Zebedee owned his own business. Perhaps they had servants at home to look after them. Perhaps James and John were missing those servants out on the road with Jesus. Perhaps they'd been brought up to to believe that they were destined for greatness. After all, I think it was Maureen Lipman who once said, the next best thing to a private education is to have a pushy Jewish mother. And these two probably had a pushy Jewish mother, as well as a father with a funny name. Jesus turns to these posh kids. He turns to these sons of thunder who wanted to call down fire on a poor Samaritan village. And he says to them, no, if you want to be great, you must be the servant to you all. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. You see, it's clear. Power kills love because love looks for the good of others and serving and love is the essence of God. If you want to prepare your place in glory, then you need to learn to serve because serving is the essence of God. We serve not because we look forward to some return in heaven. We don't think of it as an earthly investment with a celestial return. First and foremost, we serve because that is what followers of Jesus do. Why? Look at the small word at the beginning of verse 45. For. For, because it says. Because we serve, because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give up his life as a ransom for many. Nowhere in the Bible is this better expressed than in that early Christian hymn in Philippians 2, which says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death, on a cross. You see, that is staggering self-giving. Jesus was equal to God and yet went to die on a Roman cross. It was a method of execution designed by the Roman Empire to keep the slaves in order. He died as he had lived, in close association with the prostitutes, the thieves, the sick, the mentally unwell. He died the death of a slave. Here is Jesus. Was he the king of kings? See, it's hard to tell up to Easter, isn't it? Before Easter Sunday. See, he had, he, had exchanged, he, he had exchanged his place with God for a life on earth. He had exchanged his purple robe for a towel around his waist. He had exchanged his eternal crown for a crown of thorns. His throne for a cross. But on that first Easter Sunday, he left us in no doubt because he rose again. This is the King of Kings. This truly is the Son of God because he died and he rose again. 
And in so doing, he gave his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom for me and for you. He gave a king's ransom for me and for you. Do you recognize this king? Will you serve this king? Will you give your life for him? Let us pray, shall we? Dear Jesus, I want to admit my guilt and say sorry for the way I've treated you and other people. I have rebelled against you and failed to love you and others as I should. Please forgive me and help me to change. I want to make you my king and say thank you for what you have done for me on the cross. I'm so grateful that you suffered for my sin instead of me. Thank you that you love me so much. I also want to ask you for the gift of eternal life and the gift of your Holy Spirit to help me to trust and obey you from now on. And we thank you for your resurrection that shows us that this is all true. It is all true. Come into our lives now and help us to serve. Amen.